0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hello and welcome to the Slate political gab fest. For June 2nd, 2022, it's the Forgive Me, Joe edition I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. No, I'm not in Washington, D.C. That was a trick. Oh, my God. I'm in Chicago because I'm spending a week working with my dear CityCast colleagues in Chicago. And what a great city. So happy to be here. That oh, my God, of course, came from John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning, who's in New York City. Hello, John.
2: Hello, David.
1: And not oh, my God, not impressed with the fact that I'm in Chicago because she's been everywhere is Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. In New Haven. Hello, Emily.
3: You must be feeling very exuberant since it's really John who does all the traveling of the three of us. And really, in COVID times, none of us go much of anywhere. I've traveled
1: a ton this year. And I'm sort of ashamed to admit it because I've traveled a lot. It's all, I'm, I'm making up for lost time. This week on the GabFest, the response to the Uvalde shootings, the catastrophic police mistakes that were made, the lies that have been told, and the prospects for gun legislation. Then, does Biden's plan to forgive $10,000 in student loans for millions of Americans make sense? And then, Republican members of Congress and a lot of other people are refusing to honor subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Will they be forced to testify? How bad and precedent-setting is their refusal to show up? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. The revelations about the Uvalde massacre have brought shame on local police and compounded the tragedy as though you could compound something that was that terrible to begin with. And yet they've somehow made it worse. Different police officials have now had to walk back almost everything that was originally claimed about the police response to the shootings and a lot of what they claimed even after that in the secondary claims. On Wednesday, Texas officials acknowledged that a teacher did not, in fact, leave a door open to let the shooter in, but that an automatic lock had failed. They still have only barely explained how the incident commander made such a colossal mistake in abandoning active shooter protocols and waiting an hour before going in after him. It's a tragedy layered over with catastrophic incompetence, all soaked, marinated drowning in America's insane gun culture. So Emily, more than a week after this tragedy, we've, we've all sort of been living with it. These incredibly sad stories of funerals of the, the families. uh, upended and and destroyed by this, what is sticking with you?
3: I have just been riven by this story. And I know there are so many terrible things that happen in the world, but this has really gotten to me. And one reason for it, I think, is that I feel such frustration that that this 18-year-old was so easily able to obtain a gun and that we've had this string of legally authorized gun purchases that have led to mass casualties and just lead to so much gun violence in our country. And here the last line of defense failed, right? The idea that the police, that law enforcement in the state of Texas, which is, you know, so swashbuckling about law enforcement, that they could utterly, utterly botch the scene of the shooting and leave children vulnerable, that so much that those kids would be on 911 begging for help, and that help did not come in any timely way. It's Unfathomable. You're right. They still haven't explained it. We haven't listened to the voices of those children on those calls. I mean, that is going to be truly unbearable. But we know that there were shots being fired as the police were standing in the hallway that the police could hear that were coming through over 911. And I just can't understand it. And I can't understand how we've gotten to this pass where. These were the rescuers they were supposed to rush in, they failed, and the country still seems frozen.
1: There's been this interesting question about should we see the photographs of the of the scene and should that be shared and th- which is a different question from should we hear the calls and I personally think we should probably shouldn't see the photographs that they will inflame uh, the wrong people and and simply and not particularly do something for the for the right people. I absolutely think we should hear those calls. I think there's something about the human voice. I mean, we're podcasters, all of us. But I think there's something about those voices that will, in fact, be moving and powerful. And I really do hope that those are heard. But I don't know if we will.
2: And the idea behind pictures or voice is to keep this real and not allow the fact that it's become such a regular part of our American culture. There have been several shootings even since this one, you know, to keep people from being anesthetized to the horror of what happened. And I'd just like to go back to the word um, you used, Emily, the, I think you said they botched it. It feels like the botch is built in, which is by which I mean, when you have a situation where an 18 year old can go and buy two of these assault style weapons and that much ammunition, the, the police are going to be outgunned the SWAT teams that can come in, the tactical forces that can come in are always going to be late because you can't have a tactical team right at the door always. You can't put a tactical team in every school. And also, and I'm relying, as I will probably often in this discussion, um, on the work of James Densley and Jillian Peterson of the Violence Project who studied all of these mass shootings. And um, there are two things that really struck out in an interview they did with Politico. One is... Mostly, these are suicide attempts by the shooters. So the the idea that you have a good guy with a gun isn't going to stop them from going in and shooting the place up. It just means that they'll get what they want when they get killed. And the second thing is, 90% of the time with these shooters, they went to the school. That wasn't the case in this case. But they went to the school, which means it's an inside job. Locked doors aren't going to stop them because they go there. It just seems like everything I read about this botched response affirms the idea that in any of these cases, a response is always going to be botched.
3: That's all totally true and well said. Obviously, you are not excusing the response of the police in Uvalde, where they had just done an active shooter drill two months earlier, been trained to rush in and utterly failed to do that.
1: What do you guys think about the credibility of the police in the wake of Uvalde? Is this going to have a... a, cascading effect whereby when police come out and speak after terrible events they are just the the level of trust is going to be eroded or is this something which will be forgotten so many things times a a terrible event happens and you think oh this surely will change everything and we we talk about how it's going to change everything and you realize when you look back six months later it really didn't change anything people still listen to police uh spokespeople and uh you know the police still make stuff up and they still uh you know don't don't Uh, give give the full story that ultimately comes out years later in some trial that no one ever follows up on?
3: I mean, I just think we're so reliant on the police as a culture. How are we really ever going to break that habit of listening to them after an event of, we need them. And so it's really hard to imagine it having lasting impact. That said, it really deeply troubles me that the police department in Uvalde and this little mini police department in the Uvalde school district have ceased cooperating with the Texas statewide investigation, because that just suggests they care much more about protecting themselves than getting to the bottom of what happened, which is important for preventing it the next time.
2: Well, going back to that idea of why, whether we'll trust the police, there's such a craving for information in the early moments of these these massacres that I think... Um, Even if people are distrustful, the craving for information makes people incredibly credulous. And in this case, of course, the first voice was the governor, which is um, uh, who is in an election uh, race this year. And, you know, there's an argument that a lot of leaders, presidents and governors and otherwise that you let the officials do it um, because, A, it's their job. They're close to it. And B, um, you don't get what happened to Abbott, which is that he gave out bad information.
1: Emily, there's a lumbering movement Lumbering movement, they're like baby steps, something towards some kinds of legislation in Texas, maybe slightly stiffened red flag laws. Is there any reason to think this won't end the way all of this has ended in the past? The proposed laws, sort of being tossed around and changed and people talking about, oh, maybe we will get some changes even at the national level and then ultimately failing uh, or never getting to a vote. And then the same state legislatures loosening gun restrictions in some other way a few months from now. Is there any reason to think this is different? We thought it was different at Newtown. It wasn't different.
3: Politics are worse now in the sense that they're even more polarized. I think there's some tiny possibility of some kind of federal red flag law, which, you know, we talked about, I think, last week is the idea of temporarily taking away guns from people, where there's some kind of proceeding that they pose a danger to themselves or others. Um, I don't think that's the most effective solution by any long shot, and it's not even clear that that will pass.
2: And it may very well just be a, a red flag nudge to the states rather than a federal law Uh, with lots of due process protections. I think there's some evidence that red flag laws help in cases of domestic violence and abuse at the hands of guns. As we all know, there are kind of there's there are three or four major categories of gun. There's death by suicide in which a gun was used. There's street crime crime. uh, then there's these mass shootings and domestic violence is the fourth. Four different areas that have four different kinds of solutions. It doesn't seem like a red flag would have happened in this case. What might have happened, and again, I'm going back to the work by James Densley and Jillian Peterson, Raise the age to 21. The average age of the shooters in all of these cases they've studied, average age, 18. And then to the point of legislation and mental health, one of the things they say is if you wanted to attach part of this problem, and their argument is it's got, mul- there's a multiplicity of issues. Um, but if you want to go after mental health, and this is the test of the legislation being promoted by uh, Republicans who don't want to do anything about easy access to guns. And what they've suggested is hiring 500,000 psychologists to put them in schools around the country. And if you assume a salary of about $70,000 a year, that's about $35 billion a year in funding. So uh, that's the test of all
1: of this discussion about mental health uh, responses to these shootings. Emily, one thing that has me somewhat despondent so, gun owners are this tiny minority of Americans, and gun owners who don't want gun restrictions are a teensy, teensy minority of Americans. They're extremely powerful, but they're about to get a huge Supreme Court win, right? What's that going to do? And can you just quickly explain what that is?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a case about a gun law in New York. The New York restriction on gun ownership is quite onerous. The Supreme Court will surely strike it down based on its evolving Second Amendment jurisprudence. The question is just how big a hole they are going to blow in state and local gun safety laws across the board. Um, I mean, they could just make it much, much harder for states uh, to impose restrictions in the name of the Second Amendment. And what you see here is the conservative Supreme Court grabbing a hold of a part of the Bill of Rights that they really like and being super expansionist about it um, in a way that flies in the face of states uh, trying to, you know, make their own laws and policies within their borders. So, yes, we are anticipating that in the New York gun case, which should be decided by the end of June.
2: And on the on the What's happening in Congress, the other branch of government? We have the House on Thursday is likely to pass um, a bill with a series of provisions, including raising the, the age to twenty-one. Um, all and and it will pass the House and will go nowhere in in the Senate. In the Senate, they're um, they're mostly focused around the red flag law and and um, a far more modest response and and some mental health response which again will be really interesting because of the um the work i've been citing is as you quite rightly pointed out david it mental health um officers in schools would would Um, help with these other problems that um, Peterson and Densley have have connected them to, which is the despair that has led to increase in overdose and in suicide more broadly. Um, And so there is actually an epidemic of despair which channels itself um, into these 18-year-old shooters, some of whom, by the way, if you're thinking of other causal factors, What their work shows is that if you have suicidal ideation, if you are then given a scapegoat by a charismatic public figure, and we know some of those who exist, if you're given a scapegoat to explain why you feel suicidal, you then turn your inward thoughts outward towards groups that you can attack because you've been given this link between your despair and this other group. So in a time of despair, when you are a public figure turning other groups into scapegoats, you're playing with fire.
1: Slate Plus members, you, of course, get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Uh, we're going to talk today about Elon Musk uh, musking. He musked this week, and the way he musked was uh, demanding that his employees at Tesla and SpaceX, his 112,000 employees at, at Tesla and SpaceX, return to work in the office full-time, uh, no remote work allowed at Tesla and SpaceX? Is he a visionary or a monster for his requirement? Go to slate.com slash Gapfest plus to become a member today. And also, you get so much other stuff member exclusive, full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You get no ads on podcasts and unlimited reading on the slate site. Slate.com slash Gapfest plus. This episode of the Gapfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It
0: is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: President Biden plans to cancel $10,000 of federal student debt for anyone who has federal student loans and earns less than $150,000 a year. It's a procedurally finicky thing to do because income verification is going to be a little bit tricky. The IRS and the other parts of the government can't share that information so easily, so simply. But it is something that Biden can do all on his own without Congress. And that's why he's probably doing it. So, John. What's the the theory behind this move and what would the cost to the country be if he does it? And the gain for the country.
2: Right. Well, so there's the policy and the political. um, So the policy theory is that if if you have so many people who are burdened by student debt, um, that in a time of high inflation, you can remove um, this burden, $10,000 of relief Um, that would be calibrated to um, those who make less than $150,000 and $300,000 for married couples. So that would settle the balances of about a third of the borrowers while cutting the total debt at least in half for another 20%. And that's from the Department of Education. And then the idea would be that it would um, uh, benefit uh, those who have not shared in prosperity and remove this anvil from... um, uh, from future economic activity by those people. The, the arguments against um, are that, uh, I mean, there are lots of them. One is that even if you target it as the Biden administration appears to be doing, you still end up um, helping people who don't need the help Um, And then the question is, why are you forgiving this kind of loan debt? What about, say, medical loan debt, which is um, the result of accidents as opposed to a a free choice to decide to go to college? What about all those people who uh, attended college but never took on debt? What about all those people who didn't even go to college at a four-year college but went to a community college because um, the four-year college was too expensive? What about the person who paid off their student loan debt a week ago? What about the people who avoided debt by serving in the military to qualify for the GI Bill? So that's a broader, and then there's the economic, there are some possible economic effects, um, but those are the kind of fairness effects.
1: um, uh, And then,
2: of course, what do you do
1: going forward? Emily, why do you think so many people are irritated about it? As John started to get at, there are a lot of different constituencies that seem to feel it's either inadequate or it's too, it's unfair. So it's it's being attacked from all the possible directions it can be attacked from.
3: Right. I mean, to me, this just seems like a policy thicket and a political thicket for the reasons you both just laid out. So Uh, The minute Biden came forward with this $10,000 idea, advocacy groups that have been asking for debt relief scorned it and said, you know, basically, this is not at all going to be enough of a solution. And so this quite substantial debt relief in terms of the amount of overall money and all the fairness questions it raised that John was talking about isn't even going to satisfy the political constituency that really wants it. So Biden's going to get denounced for not doing enough. And then it really does have deep fairness questions about why this kind of debt, Um, you know, our method in this country for financing college doesn't make any sense. We have these huge price tags, wildly different amounts people pay. There's nothing about this uh, $10,000 cap debt relief that's going to really change that system. It also doesn't change things for the people going to college now, right? It's like debt amnesty. It doesn't necessarily apply going forward. And it's just really complicated to figure out what is a fair way to think about these exorbitant loans people have taken out in some cases um, versus, like— People who are more disadvantaged didn't get to go to college in the first place. Like, what about them? Um, It just is so tricky. And then there's this other racial justice element, which is that um, Black college students take out disproportionate amounts of loan, and that is like a huge burden on them. And yet at the same time, it's not the most disadvantaged people who are going to benefit from loan relief because those aren't the people who go to college. So I just... My God, I, I. This is one where I like really kind of pity the Biden administration.
2: And there's also, you know, ar- arguably the income-driven repayment scheme, which exists already, can be tweaked uh, and improved and changed in a way that might be more effective. Certainly less politically. Uh, you know, nobody's going to run to the microphone and say, "We've tweaked the income-driven repayment plan." <laughs> you know, that's the whole fix here, which is that to be economically. To be powerful enough to get the political benefit, which, by the way, is a difficult, um, you know, it's not certain that there's a direct political benefit to be won here. Um, But anyway, it's got to be real big to wake everybody up to the beauty of it. But the bigger it gets, the stickier it becomes economically.
3: But just one thing about the income-driven repayment plan, which is that it's supposed to be that your debt gets forgiven, more of it over time. It's like up to 10% of your earnings. It does not work. It has benefited only a tiny, tiny fraction of people. There is just this horrible bureaucracy of eligibility rules. If you've ever talked to anyone who tried to get any kind of debt relief from it, you hear these awful stories. So how are we supposed to trust it to work better?
1: Millions eligible, 32 people. 32 people in the country. I mean, it's am I mean, laughing. Come on. It's laughing, but it's, tra- it's tragic. So
2: that is embarrassing. But I thought, Emily, that the, the, the problem is it's not that it's a bad idea. It's it's poorly executed. So that if you oh, improve totally. the execution. Yeah, yes. Okay. But you
3: just have to trust that they could execute it better when it's being executed clearly a, in a failed way. Like, that's a leap.
1: But don't you feel that the, at least what Biden is doing, it is are a whole set of people who are suddenly not going to have student debt if he if he carries it out. And there are people who it actually turns out the people who are closest to bankruptcy, who are most likely to be damaged by student debt, have relatively trivial amounts of debt. They most, many of them are people who didn't actually complete college. They didn't they went to, to for profit uh, colleges and didn't complete and, and are and our weighted under what might be a trivial amount of debt to a doctor or a lawyer but for somebody who doesn't have a college degree or hasn't made a huge amount of money it is it is life crippling and so to liberate some hundreds of thousands of people from that and that burden is does seem to me like a it's a it's a pretty simple clear fix and as but as you guys say everyone else is so angry that probably whatever political benefit is gained uh, is is wiped away, but but maybe there's a, a, a gain for those number of people.
3: And that seemed so sensible, right? I mean, when I was thinking about that part of it, okay, 90% of the people who are facing bankruptcy fall into this under $10,000 pool. I thought like, okay, great. Let's just let all that go. Sure.
1: And I guess the reason, I mean, just to just to touch on some of the reasons that people are critical, the the medical debt. Well, medical debt isn't, for the most part, it's not federal debt. Like, the, I don't think it it's not, it is not something that he can do with a stroke of a pen. This is federally guaranteed or federally issued debt for these students. And so Biden can actually make that, that action.
3: Until the Supreme Court stops him, at least. Go on.
1: Right, right. Good point. You also for debt for few people in the future, you can't prospectively pay off people's debt. For people who've, who've settled up their, their debt. Like, what do you want to do? Like, I don't think you can, I don't think he could arbitrarily send $10,000 checks to people who happen to have completed their student loan repayments in last year. It's a thing that he can do easily. I'm not saying that these criticisms aren't valid or that they're not deeply felt because clearly they are. It's just that he, he doesn't have a lot of options when you have a Congress that can't act. The piece that has just not been addressed at all is just, it's ludicrous what's happened with higher education. It's this, it's the gutting of the public funding has been gutted and, and universities just continue, not because they're particularly greedy, but, because there aren't real controls on them just to raise costs and costs and costs. I assume that what's happened in pandemic, which is this enormous drop in the number of students enrolling in college, will have a will have a knock on effect and ultimately college costs will have to come down because they just aren't getting enough students and they're gonna have to they're gonna have to do something to make it more affordable. But but university in this country is absurdly expensive.
3: That's not gonna happen. They're just gonna keep like not having most people pay the actual price, right? I mean college is incredibly incredibly discounted for so many people and then the people who actually pay the whole thing are relatively wealthy like that's how it works
1: john does it seem useful to biden and the democrats if this uh this debt cancellation goes through does it change the narrative so that people are at least talking about something other than inflation i don't like i can't i, I it doesn't seem like the polls are going to be filled with voters who are suddenly Hosanna and Joe biden with gratitude but does it change the narrative
2: option in a really awful drawer full of bad options and so the the positive case politically for the way this works out is that it creates a fight and the fight goes on for a while and the democrats get to say we're on the side of um middle class and working people who um you know have are totally buried under this debt you get it allows the President to say, "I took action, right The last big thing that everybody's paid attention to because nobody's talking about Ukraine in this context uh you know they they think about the failure of build back better. Well, here he is acting um to the extent that this is a response to inflation of a kind. in other words, yes, you're you know every gas station. Price sign is a negative billboard against the Democrats. And so, this is a way to say, well, we're thinking about long term, the long term burdens of high inflation activities like college. So, yeah, it keeps it, it, it's turf, Democrats are safer on. It also allows them to have some response to the inflation because otherwise the responses are incredibly thin. Um, and so, that's probably the best they can hope for in this pretty dreary environment because when you are on the stump as i was recently and hear democrats talking about the infrastructure bill it does not get the crowd in you know um in an uproar and what'll be really interesting to watch in these purple districts and purple states is how much the candidates talk about abortion and uh gun safety because it's not a certainty that those two issues work uh unequivocally well for Democrats, um, in these kinds of elections. So this is also a way for Democrats to stay on turf where they might be a little, it might be a little safer for them.
1: Hey, GabFest listeners, by the way, if you missed John's interview with Elif Batuman about her new book, a sequel to The Idiot, her book, Either Or, check it out. It is our GabFest reads for this month, or I guess for last month, technically. And, uh, you should check it out in your feed, John interviewing Elif Batuman. It's a book that he loved. Yes, John. Yes, indeed. And a conversation that he loved too.
2: Hello, GabFest listeners. I have a very exciting announcement. I'm coming to you live from the streets of New York city, because we're going to be coming to you live on June 29th. You can join me, Emily and David at 6th and I in Washington, DC, not the streets of New York, but Washington, DC slate plus members will get an exclusive discount. So, if you're a Slate Plus member, you're golden. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, what a great time to join. We're also doing a special cocktail hour for a limited number of guests, so go to Slate.com slash GabFest right now to get your tickets. They're first come, first served, and while there are unlimited virtual tickets, there's a limited number of in-person, not virtual, be-with-us-together tickets. We can't wait to see you on the 29th at 7.30 Eastern Time at 6th and I in Washington, D.C., See you then.
4: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So, first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
4: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
0: And then
1: it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene.
2: Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all.
1: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
4: Like the drag queen say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
1: I cannot remember where I saw this, but someone observed this week that if Watergate happened today, the president would never pay the price for it because all the president's men would not bother to show up and testify. We are witnessing a really interesting and deeply depressing spectacle over in the House where a huge percentage of the witnesses who are called to testify to the January 6th committee, a huge percentage of the high profile ones in particular, are refusing to show up. So, Emily, who is resisting, refusing these lawful subpoenas and why are they doing it?
3: I mean, who is not resisting? Well, no, actually, that's not true. Mark Meadows cooperated a little bit. So did... um Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner weeks ago. Uh, the people who are not cooperating include four members of Congress.
1: McCarthy, Jordan, Brooks, and a couple others.
3: Uh, and also uh, newly added to the list, uh, Peter Navarro, who is Trump's trade advisor and filed a lawsuit this week about a subpoena he received in February, which the FBI knocked on his door about um, in May. And Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing here honestly started during the Trump administration with President Trump himself, former President Trump, which is a lot of fist shaking about congressional subpoenas. And the congressional subpoena power is both crucial to our democracy. It's a huge tool that Congress has if you have a valid legislative purpose, which basically means you're trying to figure out what to do about a problem, which can include investigating something that's gone wrong in the past to prevent it from happening in in the future, then Congress has the power to force people to show up and testify, except that Congress hasn't enforced its own powers to do that by actually like throwing someone in jail and since the beginning of the 20th century. And so effectively this power has operated by everyone just complying or with these kinds of long, long dances in court where people do not comply and the clock runs out. We've seen that happen in previous administrations And we are seeing it again, kind of on steroids at this moment, where it seems like this um, January 6th committee is super important. This terrible thing happened um, in the Capitol itself. There are lots of people implicated who are both in Congress and high up in the government at the time or connected to people who are in the Trump administration. And for all kinds of reasons, legal and political, they have disincentives to comply, right? It's only going to help all these members of Congress win their elections if they're seen as shaking their fist at this mostly Democratic House committee. And legally speaking, they don't want to have to show up and tell the truth about what's happened. And some of them don't even want to show up and take the fifth, because they don't like the idea of saying that they're incriminating themselves, presumably. So they're just not showing up at all. And they are turning Congress into a paper tiger. And that, in terms of our separation of powers, is really bad.
2: Well, everything you say is true. We should also mention Scott Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, who coordinated the plan to try to replace the uh, acting attorney general, and who it is reported um, after a conversation with Mark Meadows. Um, Meadows burned documents in the fireplace of his office. That's one of the things that has been uh, alleged. One thing that I wonder about him, we'll learn next week, is um, they've interviewed a thousand people in this committee and the big fish have refused. But um, big fish have lots of little fish that work for them. um, And they have been able to get um, testimony from not these members of Congress uh, staffers, but um, the staffers of lots of White House people who have, Meadows' is, uh, staffer, for example, and Meadows has refused to testify more, um, and also people who, uh, who worked in other key jobs in the White House who, in this pell-mell uh, effort, um, were taking notes or cc'd on, on emails. And so it could very well be the case that these members um, uh, get in the narrative that comes out, um, their testimony would have maybe helped them spin whatever is going to come out because what comes out might be quite detailed, specific and quite damning. Now, what you said about politics is exactly right. They're hoping to turn this into a partisan fight that people think, oh, this is just, you know, two sides going after it again. It's just the same old thing as opposed to what it is, which is the greatest threat, um, uh, by the most powerful person, uh, in the democracy to a central tenant of the democracy, um, they would like it to be a fight about something else. So turning it into a legal drama um, is something people are used to, not kind of this deep threat to the functioning of our system. I separate
1: possibly incorrectly these subpoenas and the refusal to, to comply with them into two categories, the members of Congress and uh, they are refusing to comply for a set of reasons, mostly for the reasons that Emily cited, but also they are making a claim that if Congress is going to be subpoenaing its own members, it's going to be a dangerous road to go down. I know they're making this claim disingenuously, but that's the claim. And then, but the people like Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro, who are refusing subpoenas, claiming some kind of executive privilege that there's an executive privilege to break the law.
3: They don't work. They didn't even,
1: yeah. And also they didn't even, weren't even working officially for Trump and they, and these were, these were not, this was about overturning the election was the discussions, which can't possibly be something that's protected by presidential privilege. Uh, the idea that those subpoenas could not be enforced that, that we may reach a, you know, November and, this committee gets disbanded or undone or January 1st or whenever the Congress turns over and Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro have not been held to account for this is incredibly threatening to the country. We already had in the Trump presidency, he essential blanket refusal of, Trump officials to testify under about anything that they didn't want to testify about. They just wouldn't show up to Congress and they were never held to account. Congress was never able to compel them to do it. But now Trump is no longer president. These people have no, uh, you know, plausible claim that they are protecting some sort of executive interest. And still, Congress can't even act. It is shocking.
3: Well, this is where actually the Justice Department comes in, right? Because whether Congress wants to put people in jail for contempt of Congress and do something it hasn't done for almost 100 years, I think actually more than 100 years at this point, that's one question, whether the Justice Department should be issuing criminal Uh, subpoenas with potentially uh, criminal contempt citations. That's a different matter. And in fact, that's what prompted Navarro's lawsuit was the involvement of the Justice Department. And so this is the part in the conversation where everyone says, basically, where is Attorney General Merrick Garland? Is he going to back up Congress? Where is his investigation? And have they been too slow? Um, You know, a couple weeks ago, they asked for the transcripts of all the January 6th committee hearings, which is just a really interesting interplay between the branches of government that um, the Justice Department would feel that Congress's investigation was further along and had perhaps information that um, DOJ itself doesn't have.
2: I would um, just I wanted to add to the my point earlier about lower level staffers. Remember that Alexander Butterfield was the one who who in the Watergate um, hearings. Um, uh, testified to the existence of the taping system. He was Haldeman's assistant. So again, it's somebody. It's not the big fish. It wasn't Haldeman, um, the president's chief of staff, but it was an assistant to Haldeman who ended up, you know, t- major major turning point in that public investigation. So you could
1: imagine something like uh, like that happening in these hearings. Emily, is the game of run out the clock going to work?
3: Probably. Which is awful. But yeah, we're getting closer and closer. This is where the Justice Department either comes in or it doesn't.
2: And can I make one last point, which is this is not about the past. Everything that you've described and the frustration you were articulating, David, and, and both of you, about the weakness of the system, this is a real-time display of all of the things that led to the January 6th. The talent for diversion, the belief in lies, the total ignoring of both norms and rules and the view that basically power is all that matters and political team is all that matters, and there's nothing higher than that. All of that was what led to January 6th, Um, and it's all going to be on display in the way people respond to the hearings looking into January 6th.
1: Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily Bazelon, when you are fully recovered from COVID and getting back to your regular boozy habits, sitting on the porch breathing deeply, drinking heavily, what are you going to be chattering about?
3: You know, really, I should have come up with some chatter about, like, puppies or flowers or, I don't know, uh, uh, yummy food. Instead, I got fixated on a piece in political called It's Going to Be an Army. Tapes reveal GOP plan to contest elections. And I'm just having a kind of sense of deja vu. This is a story about... um, Republican National Committee staffers in Michigan who are signing up thousands of volunteers to be poll workers for the next election. The idea is to connect them immediately, um, you know, in the moment with armies of lawyers who are going to help them challenge every single ballot that's possible to challenge. We heard a lot of things of, of this ilk leading up to 2020. Not all that much of it actually played out on the ground or at least not in decisive ways. But now they're signing up thousands of people in Michigan, and one imagines that with all of the attention to questions about certifying elections, all of the kind of technical bureaucratic work of counting the vote and authorizing it and making sure it's valid, that there could really be the kind of interest among Republican volunteers that could muck up the works for real in places like Wayne County, which was, um, which includes Detroit. It was a huge um, issue in the last election um, in terms of Michigan's returns. And I just, the idea that we are going to have even more of these um, efforts to potentially just undermine the work of election officials. I mean, man, how much more of this can the country take?
2: And also to keep the fuel behind the effort to hire all those people, you have to increasingly speak in apocalyptic and demon, demonizing terms about the other side based Largely on just fiction, um, as opposed to if you're on the left and you're and you're worried about uh, in the integrity of the ballot, you can look to the pieces of legislation being passed by um, by Republicans to go to make it harder to vote or to put partisanship in the vote counting process. Um, And so I worry about the demonization that takes place to keep those armies of poll watchers going.
1: It just keeps the fire hot.
3: John, you can come to my cocktail party. No one will want to talk to either of us.
1: <laughs> that is not true. Everyone always wants to talk to you guys. John Dickerson, what's your chatter?
2: Uh, I have an animal related chatter, but first one that AP analyzed the early vote in Georgia, uh, the early voting data, I should say, in Georgia after the primary and found that 37,000 people who voted in the state's Democratic primary two years ago cast ballots in this year's Republican primary. We talked about this with respect to this crossover voting idea with respect to to Nebraska. Strategic voting is always kind of a, a mirage, but in this case, it might have, it might be happening as Democrats participate in Republican primaries to try to block Trump-backed candidates. Now, in the case of Georgia, the Trump-backed candidates got beaten by such a large margin, I bet there's a Wikipedia entry for a margin that's that large. I mean, losing by 52 points, you have to literally go and punch voters in the face to lose that badly. And yet David Perdue did that. Um, So 37,000 Democrats didn't really matter in a defeat that large, but it is interesting you get 37,000 people to do that. So that's worth watching. The other thing is that mice are afraid of bananas. Scientists were studying the relationship between male mice and stress. And um, it is normally induced by uh, proximity of male mice to late pregnant or lactating female mice. Why? Because male mice eat baby mice. And so- Yucky. Yes, female mice- about to give birth or giving birth, uh, produce a scent that keeps the male mice away, so that the new babies can survive. That scent, it turns out, is very close to the scent of bananas, and the scent essentially increases the stress among the male mice, and they run away. And so they found out by accident that if you bring in some banana oil into a cage of mice, that they will freak out as um, as if they're being about to be attacked. Uh, and so this um, is this is a, this is a um, a, a long-time mystery that has been solved.
3: So wait a minute. No one ever showed a mouse a banana before. That just seems like a thing that would have happened.
2: No, they showed the mouse a motorcycle, and um, and they also
3: uh, gave a mouse a cookie. Gave
2: a moose a, a muffin, but they didn't uh, bring a banana in.
1: My chatter is about a excellent column by Ezra Klein in the New York Times. What America needs is a liberalism that builds. It's this week, and it's asking the question about why. The U.S. is bad at building things and how uh, doleful that is for the Democratic Party. If you look at those Great Depression-era glorious dams and bridges and and footpaths, uh, if you look at the Empire State being built in a year, and now you have the United States where it costs three times as much to build tunnels in the U.S. as in other comparable countries, rich, unionized, safe countries, Uh, and it is impossible to build anything quickly and it's not just because republicans don't want to do things or not just because there are too many unions it's it's what ezra talks about and this is a little bit what paul sabin your husband has written about it's this procedural liberalism that uh, obsessed with ensuring a legally sound process uh democrats have made a government that doesn't work as well as it could some of it is for environmental protection reasons or other other reasons where you want to be you know, safeguard against some greater damage, but some of it is just cumbersome and difficult. and And it's also the case that some of the best people have left government and gone to work at nonprofits. And so government itself, the quality of people who work in government is not as as high. and that combines to to create a government that is is not particularly good at building things when it needs to build things or when people want it to build things. And that's um, that's bad for Ezra would argue for liberals and and I would argue for the country as a whole. So a friend of mine asked me this week, I have a chatter I want to send you. How do I send it to you? And I said you should send your listener chatter to GabFest at Slate.com by email or tweet to us at SlateGabFest. That's a true story. A friend really asked me that. And you guys have been sending us great listener chatters. And this week's comes from Barbara Townsler. It's about potatoes.
3: My cocktail chatter this week when drinking a nicely pulled pint of Guinness, is news of the 11th World Potato Congress being held this week in, you guessed it, Dublin, Ireland. 1,000 participants from across the globe are attending and will be able to attend sessions on various topics. For example, from couch potato to performance fuel, repositioning the potato, or the potato, healthy or not. And finally, to infinity and beyond, the potato on Mars.
1: I am always interested in the question of whether potatoes are healthy or not. They feel really deeply unhealthy, and yet, I, I don't know, maybe they just have bad publicity and they need more World Potato Congresses.
3: I mean, why are they any more unhealthy than any other starch? What do they have going against them other than they are a starch? Do you feel like rice and, and pasta are unhealthy? Maybe Their preparation
1: bad. is almost always, uh, always, almost always involves a huge amount of fat. And so it's hard, and salt. And so it's hard to prepare them in such a way that they aren't fat and salt delivery vehicles. I love fat and salt. I love potato chip is an incredible food. Incredible. It's amazing that someone invented the potato chip, but it never has struck me as being healthy. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher this week is Grace Woodruff. Bridget will be back soon. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGavFest and tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at, at slate.com And definitely come to our live show. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live June 29th in Washington, D.C. We would love to see you there. It's going to be great. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. we'll talk to you next week give it give a quick puppy quick puppy update
3: oh puppy is so lovable and amazing and she's sleeping pretty well she really could work on her house training she just doesn't really get it i think like she's eager to please but she just doesn't really get it and it's not great i gotta say
1: she's giving you presents
3: exactly and i don't want them
1: Hello, Slate Plus. How's it going? So Elon Musk, uh, who cannot go a minute without making news, who makes news with, with literally every every word out of his mouth, every letter that he types, every, not even letter sometimes. Didn't he name his kid like a, a non-letter thing? And that made news because it was an exclamation point or an asterisk or something. Hashtag baby. He made news by writing memos to his employees at two companies that he runs, SpaceX and Tesla, uh, Tesla has 99,000 employees, SpaceX, 12,000 employees, both extremely successful companies. He demanded that his employees return to work in the office. There is no more remote work. You can, you can work remotely, he said, but you have to be in the office 40 hours a week. Uh, and essentially his, his, he pointed out that the people who worked on the factory floors at at Tesla and SpaceX had to be present and working for at least 40 hours a week. And he had the same expectation that his senior leaders and the people who did other kinds of work that was possible to do remotely be present and working together in person for that amount of time. So visionary monster discuss.
3: Monster. I always think Elon Musk is a monster, but anything that is this inflexible and doesn't recognize that 40 hours a week in the office at this point to most of us sounds just like a colossal imposition is being monstrous. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any requirement that people come in. Um, I do think things are lost when there's no office culture, but the idea that you would just issue this kind of blanket order um, and that if you don't like it, you can go pretend to work somewhere else. That was uh, another Musk line in all of this. It just seems totally out of step with where white collar, white collar, jobs and professional
1: um, habits are going. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate
4: Podcasts.
1: So first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin.
4: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
1: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene.
2: Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all.